guys, and welcome back to another edition of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. And of course, as always, I am your co-host, Ray Russell, riding along with you on this excursion as this week we head off to the Wild West and the old Funk family Amarillo territory. Bob going to be talking about the old Amarillo Loop, all of the old cities, many of the promoters and talents he came in contact with while there for the six-month run back in 1971. And hey, who knows what else, what other stories Bob's going to get into here this week. But first, just a quick reminder that you guys can listen to the Wrestling Stoop with Bob Roop and our sister shows like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, currently covering the 1988 in the WWF Project. You can also listen to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories. Three ongoing projects right now as part of Regional Wrestling, including Memphis 85, Georgia 81, and the UWF in 1986. You can also listen to the brand new podcast coming, the Pearl Wrestling Academy, with host Dan Janetti, the professor of Pearl Resu, as he does a deep dive taking us back all throughout the history of Japanese pro wrestling, but telling the story in the English language. And you can listen to all of those shows and more, all part of the WrestleCopia podcast network located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met from Apple to Spotify, Pocket Cast and beyond. And hey guys, while you're at it, why not follow us on social media? You can stop over to Facebook right now and follow Bob, friend Bob, at Facebook.com slash Group. Bob, looking forward to hearing from each and every one of you. No doubt about that. You can also follow me, Ray Russell, over on X, formerly Twitter. You can find me there at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And you can follow me on social media for all the latest goings on here at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. Plus, I'm constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history. And hey, while you're at it, why not subscribe to my YouTube channel, guys? YouTube.com. Slash wrestling grenade. Lots of old school wrestling footage there for you to enjoy. And last but certainly not least, now would be a tremendous time to become a WrestleCopia patron. You can do so over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Talking about that $5 all access tier. Get you so many gifts for just five bucks, including all of my insanely detailed show notes. For every episode of The Grenade Show, Monday Warfare, and the Regional Wrestling Podcast. You'll also get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. Then from there, it's remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show, covering the 1989 NWA project. Includes enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before. But that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure. Just dropped another dozen digital downloads the other day, guys. Then from there, you get random bonus video drops. And of course, our Patreon-exclusive watch-along series, covering many past WWF and WCW events. And if that wasn't enough, video casts coming soon. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription. Cancel anytime. Give it a try for a month. I think you'll like all of the content that I offer, and every penny of it goes right back here into funding the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So if you can, please help us pay some of the bills to keep all of the wonderful shows here up and running for the months and the years to come. And okay, with all of that out of the way, time to jump back into things here this week. Let's welcome him back to the show, the man himself, Bob Roop. Bob, welcome back. 
Well, thanks, Ray. It's good to be back with you. Uh, Looking forward to trotting out some more memories. Oh, as am I. I've been waiting a while to get here to the Amarillo Territory. Ever since that Terry Funk story you told several weeks ago here on the show, I couldn't wait till we got here. And here we are. You spent two years in the Florida Territory outside of that tour of Japan. Took you two years to get out of there, but now you find yourself in a brand new territory for the next six months. You leave the Florida office on July 1st, and by July 3rd, you're in the ring here in the Amarillo Territory. And uh, yeah, so this week and, and perhaps next, I thought we could dive in, uh, do a little deep dive here into your run, some of the talent that you came in contact with, what you remember going up and down the roads there in the Amarillo area. And um, you also make your very first heel turn here in the Amarillo Territory. I can't wait to get into that. Well, yeah, it's boy, the thoughts are, are racing through my head as you as you bring out these triggers of, of me suddenly remembering, looking at it kind of through your eyes. One overall realization that just came to me was because Amarillo was a smaller territory. Mm-hmm. You had, you know, a lot of the towns were, were not, you know, there weren't any humongous towns. Florida had uh, Miami every week. It had Tampa, which was medium sized. But it had Jacksonville, which was in a big uh, college, you know, like a basketball arena. Uh, they had some towns with some size to them. Even Amarillo was not a humongous building that they had the matches in. Right. I'm not sure what their seat size was. It might have been up to like uh, maybe seven, 8,000 people, but I, I'm not sure. I don't think I ever saw it full. And the other thing was that <laughs> there was absolutely, like Florida has some glamour to it, palm trees and uh, tropical sun and girls in bikinis. Uh, Amarillo didn't have any of that. You had scorpions walking across the road and a cacti tumbleweeds rolling across the road and uh, <laughs> the same scenery like mile after mile after mile. And hot, nasty, dry. You didn't even want to, you know, dry heat. You didn't even want to get outside. So uh, I don't think I ever was in a swimming pool or you know, I didn't have time for one thing, but uh, out sunbathing or anything like that out there in the six months I was there. So now some of it was cold weather, but uh, so quite a different vibe with Eddie Graham. I think I'd been to Madison Square Garden by this time. Two times. So maybe. Yeah. So Madison Square Garden, you're at the like, epicenter of like what pro wrestling fame, or, you know, like in terms of uh, venues that you work at. And now here I am in Odessa, Texas, where, <laughs> uh, or some little town uh, right. where the shower is a, a circular tub that's got the water in it still from the last time you were there was two or three weeks ago <laughs> you just got congealed mm. and you know, there's no way to clean it out if you're going to take a shower uh that and they had a hose that you could turn on it wasn't like a shower sprinkler or anything yeah that that's not all that glamorous i mean I you're going to say do the, that the glorious life of a professional wrestler yeah. <laughs> from yeah. the territory era yeah. anyway So, yeah, but another thing is this territory specifically was a seven day a week territory, no days off. So you did you did indeed spend a ton of time on the road. Yeah. And that was another part of it, too. Just to sort of let everybody know or or make it clear that a lot of my attitude and uh, about that, you and I were talking earlier and I said that my memories aren't as uh, lucid and, and clear as they were for some other times. But at that time in my personal life, I, there was a lot going on that, that wrestling actually at times, was, even with uh, doing, you know, on the road all the time in the car all the time, it was secondary to my personal life. I, I had a, a marriage that was on the rocks. 
And I had a, a girlfriend, and about three months after I got there, my wife and son came out to Amarillo. So I've got my girlfriend and my wife mm. in the same town. I mean, you talk about looking like an idiot. Um, <laughs> or feeling like one now. But I wanted to see my son. I, you know, I couldn't get back to working those seven days a week. I couldn't get back to Tampa. And, you know, I, I love my, uh, and still do, love my son dearly. Uh -huh. And so I wanted to see him. So I went ahead and brought him out, somehow thinking that I could make it work. And, of course, not, there's no way I could. My, my emotional and psychological, I'm not saying they were unstable, but they were certainly being stressed at that time. So the wrestling part of it, wasn't number one. That wasn't the number one focus in my life. You know, I was trying to hold it together emotionally. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and not, uh, you know, not, oh, I mean, I wasn't going to go to pieces, but I, you know, you know, I don't want to, even though my wife and I weren't going to be able to make the marriage, I didn't want to hurt her any more and more than I had to. I mean, just rejecting someone from a marriage is painful enough. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want her to know about my girlfriend, of course, because you know, that would hurt her even worse. And um, the fact that I'm admitting it makes me makes it very plain that I'm aware that a lot of people out there might say, well, gee, Bob, you were a real scumbag oh. back then. <laughs> Maybe you still are. Well, you're telling but, the story here uh, on the show, so it's not like you're hiding anything. But also, no. I was going to say, compared to what some of the other guys out there were doing, you know, at least, you know, it was it was – a little more credible of a human being than, than some of the other shady things going on. Yeah, well, you know, I, I will be. Uh, I didn't fool around on either one of those. I mean, I was fooling around on my wife with the other, but I. But my wife and I were. We weren't divorced, but we might as well have been. We were no I, longer. I get, what, I get it. We're, we're no longer intimate or anything like that. Yeah. So. I don't you want know, to pry too deep into, into, you know, into your personal life, Bob, unless you're, you know, you're comfortable with discussing it. That's not something that I was going to try to trot out here on the show, but I do appreciate you explaining where your mind was as you get, you make that move from Florida to Amarillo. Would you say that maybe this was uh, to some degree helpful though? Maybe uh, it helped you figure things out or, or do you regret? Yes. To, okay. That's cool. Yeah. I was just curious. Yeah. You, had, you had a lot of time to think doing all those smiles on the road, I suppose. You mentioned to me earlier that you had purchased a vehicle while you were there in Amarillo, or at least you had it when you got there in Amarillo, and so you didn't get to travel a lot with the other boys. Now, clearly you did in that great Terry Funk story you told several weeks ago, but you said so you regret it to a degree because you didn't really get to know a lot of the guys that were regulars down there because you didn't really ride with anybody. Of course, you had your girl with you sometimes. So maybe she made a trip here or there with you, but really you were, you were driving around a lot. Were you by yourself, or was there a specific person you rode with? No, I was by myself most okay. of the time, okay. and and I, that was fine because I um, I didn't know anybody out there that well. And when I turned heel, I don't think I knew any of the heels uh, very well. Okay, uh, so it just didn't just didn't come up. Well, um, I was hoping to do like a two part here. I don't mean in episodes. The episodes are going to go whatever they take. But I, I wanted to uh, split this thing in half because there's uh, the loop. I wanted to go through day after day, just kind of look at the different cities, the different promoters and things that worked alongside the funks. Any memories you might have in specific towns or things you might have done there, uh, your, fa your favorite town and your least favorite town, maybe why. And I wanted to run through that. There's actually a website online. I'm, I'm sorry I don't have the uh, link in front of me right now, but I, I took a few sentences here from uh, Dory Funk Jr. wrote about uh, a weekly trip, what it would be like in the Amarillo Territory. And I, I grabbed a few sentences here and there from Dory's comments, and I wanted to share them here and see if they 
jogged your memory or what you remember about the road or anything in between. Then, of course, also we're going to touch on so many of the stars here that you encountered, as well as, uh, well, some of the matches you encountered while you were here in the Amarillo Territory as well. Sounds good. So I guess what I want to do just to kick things off here is kind of take people through the life and times of Bob Roop throughout a week here in Amarillo. Now, the date or the day of the week may have changed when Dory was talking about the way the loop was run here. The best I could tell, uh, it looked like it was pretty much similar to exactly the way your it, it fell when you were there as well. So if things were a little different, I do apologize if a city was on Monday and it's Tuesday now or whatever, but you get the gist of it as uh, we get rolling here. Dory says everything always kicked off. On Saturday mornings, 10 a.m., you guys were at the Channel 10 TV studio in Amarillo uh, to get everything going there for the matches, a one-hour TV show. Was it live, I believe, every Saturday morning? It was taped. I don't know if it showed li- or played live or not. They made a tape because the reason that we had to go or somebody had to go to uh, Albuquerque on Sunday was to get the tape down there yeah. by noon. Uh, and, of course, there had to be a tape. Whether it played live in Amarillo, I'm sorry, I don't know. Okay, well, the the main reason I was uh, asking you that was I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the bicycling of the tape here, which it just sounds insane in today's world. But back then, they had one tape of the show, and there was somebody in charge of driving from city to city to get that tape to the next show in time for it to air the following day on TV. And like you said, it, it was at Albuquerque was on Sundays, and we'll talk about that in just a minute as well. So I just thought the craziness of it, you know, the, the territory era back then, there's somebody literally driving the tape from town to town in order to get this one single tape of the show, hoping that it doesn't break, I guess, uh, to, to play each day uh, in specific cities. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. You think about, though, there was no UPS or the post office, wouldn't, you know, the United States post office wasn't going to be able to get it there that quick. So I think that was the only way to do it. Unless you're going to fly the tape around, and that was, you know, that was going to be, uh, that was going to be expensive. I don't know why they didn't make dupes, but maybe that was expensive too. This might have been back in the day of uh, two inch and one and a half inch tape, where right. you didn't, you had the big reels, you know, or like uh, 14, 15 inches across, and to make make uh, like say five or six of those, and then mail them out, hoping that they'll, you know, make them. Uh, making sure they get to each town in time, maybe that way by carrying them by hand or or by the, one of the wrestlers was the most way to ensure it was going to get there. So that might by that might have been why they why they did it that way. But again, there was no UP, there wasn't the, all the modern conveniences we have now, uh, and out there I, <laughs> those towns were <laughs> those towns were far far apart. Uh, Amarillo was in a way kind of in the center of, uh, you know, like if it was a big pie or something. Right. But there, there, were, there were towns that were way outside the pie, let's put it that way. Going over Dory's words here, once we get going here, it's, it, it truly is crazy to see how much time you're on the road. You don't even get a time, like some territories, maybe somebody stops off at the, at the motel for the night, right? But you guys, sometimes, some of these shows, you finish up and it's right back on the road to get to the next city, just so you're there for yeah. the next day. That's it's yes. absolutely crazy. Uh, I'm going to yeah. play some trivia with you as we go here, and don't feel bad if you if you don't remember. But I'm going to ask you uh, which town you, you know you guys work day to day, and see if you remember. It's just going to be a fun little game here, if that's okay. Okay. All right. So we do TV here at 11 a.m. Dory says they're out the door by 12:30 from the TV studio. Grab a bite to eat, perhaps, and then you're off to where did you wrestle on Saturday nights, Bob? Do you remember? After well, TV. Well, it was 
really in if you were really in uh in uh, bad shape you had to go up into colorado we did that's that it. a few times <laughs> that's it uh, yeah and that was it seemed like it was 400 miles uh it, you had to drive like a maniac to get up there there was a town i just can't think of the name it was down by the borders about 300 miles that also ran on a regular basis on on saturday night so you were um, lucky if you got that town huh yeah yeah uh let me think well i was looking it looks like it looks like it was herford is it herford texas no herford was a was a spot show it was only about 30 40 miles away from amarillo but that was a real small town maybe cheap at the most three or four hundred people i doubt there were that many in there okay but uh (laughs) there was a town and I'll see if it, it pops up here. If okay. not, I'll try, try to it down the line. Yeah, I see a few shows on Saturdays besides Colorado. It's usually Colorado Springs or Pueblo is the big show. And uh, Dory says the only thing good about it was that uh, you lost an hour or you, you gained an hour of time back. So it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, well, uh, you, were spending, <laughs> you were spending that time in the car. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't all that enjoyable. <laughs> what were the other, town, other towns they talked about? Uh, let's see. So you got Colorado Springs or Pueblo usually on Saturdays. Promoter Herman Gus there. Uh, he says after the show was over, it was a all night drive to Albuquerque. So I just cheated. I, I just told you that. Well, you said Sundays was Albuquerque. Yeah. Uh, so you're checking in. He says usually we got to Albuquerque around three thirty in the morning at the Del Camino Hotel. Uh, he says Sunday began with promos done live at the Albuquerque TV studio. You talked about that in the past as well. How intriguing is that? That. You're using a taped show, and every time it cuts to commercial, you guys are doing local promos live. Well, it was the only time I ever had in my career that it was done that way. So, yeah, uh, they didn't have time to make the promos uh, at, at the TV station in Amarillo because mm-hmm. that takes time. Right. And to get out of there at, at like you said, noon or 1230, 1 o'clock, uh, even then, there, there usually wasn't time to get a meal. You had to have food, be drive through and get something, or run into Seven Eleven or whatever, or have pack something to go, because you had to you had to drive. I mean, you had to go uh, hit the road and to try to make it make it on time to whatever town was that night. As so, best uh, as best as you can remember, and I don't expect expect a great detail here, but you guys show up and you're going to do live promos here, and they give you what thirty seconds, sixty seconds. I don't know how long per person gets a, gets a promo here. But you guys, that's it. It's live. You got to make it work. Yeah, and usually uh, the promoter Mike London was the one that held the microphone, and I don't remember specifically what questions he asked. He, I guess, he knew what the matches were, and he would say, "Well, you know, what are you going to do against your opponent tonight?" And blah blah blah. And uh, you know, we're all together there in the in the baby faces. Any else? They're all together there in the uh, in the studio and. Uh, there, I, you know, I don't even remember the technicians and the, like the the uh, the people running the uh, the cameras and all that. But uh, we were kind of isolated. There wasn't a lot of people around. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's the way it went. It was strange. I mean, I never did anywhere else. Uh, even in foreign countries, didn't do it that way. So, it's funny you mentioned Mike London as the promoter here in Albuquerque at the Civic Auditorium. Because Dory Funk Jr. writes a funny story here. I just want to run it. I thought you might get a kick out of this one. He says, Mike London was the promoter, and he ran a tight 90-minute show. The building was often sold out. He says, a lady at the concession stand once charged Mike London's daughter for a cup of ice. 
And from that day forward, Mike London never had an intermission again. Hence the, <laughs> hence the tight 90-minute show. He says, can you imagine how much that 50-cent cup of ice costs those people? So Mike London not screwing around. So he, he has an intermission, and his daughter, the promoter, has a daughter. She wants a cup of ice. It's hot. We're in the Amarillo territory, right? And they charge her 50 cents. Well, that pisses London off, and never again does he have an intermission. They will never make money again on concessions. Unbelievable. I love it. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was different. He had some real strange habits. Uh, <laughs> I still uh, love Carl, that story though. <laughs> oh yeah. That's a great one. Well, Carl, Carl, uh, he was interviewed by Scott Teal. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he mentioned, uh, some of Mike London's practices of, he would make you wait. He, they paid you that, that night after the show in, in Albuquerque and uh -huh. he would, he'd make guys come to the bar and Carl said he had a bar and he had, Guys had to come to the bar to get paid, and he said that was because uh, that gave him more time to figure out how to steal money. Yeah, he wasn't real complimentary of, of Mike London. Now, I was uh, I was a rookie. I wasn't uh, aware of all the things. And again, I wasn't riding with people, and I wasn't riding with guys in the car. Yeah. So uh, nobody could tip you I, off. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have anybody, you know, spreading all this stuff around. So I was kind of out of the loop. I think is the best way to see it or to say it. Yeah, uh, Mike was <laughs> Mike was not highly regarded. Uh, you know, I was looking, trying. I was looking here at a map on my on my other screen while I was talking to you or listening uh -huh. to you. Yeah, I think Midland Midland might have been one of the towns we went to on a uh, on Saturdays? Saturday night. Uh, okay, but well, it doesn't matter. It's not important. Okay, uh, I, there's one town I just wish I could remember it. Anyway, okay, uh, where are we going? All right, so you guys are where are we at right now? I'm, I'm, I'm we're in Albuquerque here on Sunday. Uh, so before we get moving, I wanted to point out there were a few talents that got over more so in certain cities than others, mainly due to perhaps their heritage, Hispanic heritage, like a like a Ricky Romero who was said to be very over here in the city of Albuquerque. Uh, I know you said you might have a story or two about Ricky. Didn't know if you wanted to share one now before we move on to Monday. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I remember one specifically after I turned heel. Uh, I was working with Ricky uh, in a town that was probably, oh, 80% of the uh, audience was Hispanic. And we did a thing. I was green as grass. Uh, well, maybe not as grass, but I was pretty green. And he did a thing where we fought out. Uh, they, had, they had some bleachers in there, but they also had, instead of having seats, they had an area where people were just standing. Uh, there was maybe a couple hundred people, mostly Hispanic men, uh, who were standing. Uh, and Ricky worked a deal, which, I mean, I, I look back on him very, very lucky. But he did a thing where he had me fight him uh, and chase him all the way out, uh, out of the ring and through that crowd, Ooh. which was as dangerous as it could be. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, I, can, I can't what, protect my back at all. There was no right. security there. And so that's one thing I remember about him. And that's why I say I don't think he liked me. I know that. Uh, <laughs> he sabotaged you. <laughs> well, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know why I didn't, <laughs> I didn't give him any, I didn't give him any reason. I didn't disrespect him. I, I had a lot of regard for veterans. I mean, I looked, I maybe don't call him sir, but I was, I was deferential and uh, I never blustered and threw my weight around. Like I was, uh, I never took advantage of my amateur background. And it had no bearing, but Ricky was, a, you know, Ricky was a good talent. He drew, he drew money. He's nice looking. 
athletic looking, a mature man, and, uh, and you know, his, his boys followed in his footsteps and made careers for themselves. So, yeah, he was, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I give him, uh, as a talent, I give him high marks. I don't know him enough personally to have any, any comments about that. For some reason, we just didn't head it off. And, you know, right. I don't I don't always say it's the other person's fault. You know, it could be something lacking on my part in terms of perhaps some kind of sensitivity or, or whatever. But I certainly didn't, never meant to offend anybody. But, you know, we're, we're in this together. Why are you going to offend another member of your cast? You know, where yeah. they're going to try to step all over <laughs> your lines if they right. can. So, well, you mentioned uh, Ricky Romero. His sons followed in his footsteps. Maybe some people out there confused. Wait, I don't remember any famous Romeros. Well, that's because most of them went under the name Youngblood. Of course, Jay being the most popular, Jay Youngblood, but also his son, Rick Jr., uh, worked a little bit in the business, but Mark and Chris as well. So, uh, But Jay Youngblood probably had the most notoriety in the 1980s before he passed away fairly young himself. But yeah, Ricky Romero was definitely a top draw down there. As uh, we continue on the road here, you're leaving Albuquerque and you're off to where for Monday? Bob? Uh, El Paso. That is correct. I would also accept Abilene because sometimes you guys would yes. do split, split yes. crews. Yes, yes. A A El Paso, if you were extremely lucky, if you weren't, the story I told or another one of our, our podcasts about uh, the car with Cherry Funk and Buck Robley, mm -hmm. we were coming back from El Paso because we, we had to come back to Albuquerque, I mean to Amarillo, because we were booked in uh, Abilene the next night. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think it was 460 from El Paso back to Amarillo. And then uh, it was another 300 to uh, Abilene. My God. So, yeah, yeah, you're, just, you're living in your car. Uh, this is one of the things I really didn't like about that place. Uh, that was not my idea of uh, what I talk about traveling. Traveling always suggested eventually there's going to be some place you can stop. And enjoy where you're at, you know, and taking the sights or whatever. Not every, you know, not going by at seventy miles an hour. So. Right. I was going to say you got to, you know, for everybody out there wondering, you know, well, this is what Dory said. He said we leave Albuquerque after or after the show was over in Albuquerque, we would hit the road by 10 p.m. for the trip to El Paso. We would arrive in the town by 3 a.m. Now that's a five-hour drive, and I'm not sure how many miles that is off the top of my head. But that's not doing 60, guys. I mean, that's, you know, that's a desert road. These guys were, were burning rubber, to say the least, to get from one town to the other as fast as they could. And it still took like five hours. So think about that. Yeah. And not everybody left the night before because when you got to uh, Albuquerque to do the TV, uh, a lot of guys, you know, you if you say you came back from Midland or, or someplace uh, 300 miles on the other side of Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. You got home about two or three o'clock in the morning, and then you got up at if you went to bed, you got up at five o'clock or six o'clock to to go down to Albuquerque. So by the time you got there, I mean you're a rag, uh, and <laughs> to you had to show that night. So what are you going to do? You got to you got to work there at night. Well, a lot of the guys got a room, uh, so you've got a room uh, because you're going to go and lay down and you know take a nap or whatever. So you're checked in. If you leave that night, when you you get to El Paso, you got to get a room there. So a lot of the guys would go ahead and just stay, and they'd go to El Paso on Monday. They wouldn't they wouldn't go Sunday night. And I I remember staying at a motel there many times rather than and driving the next day during the day. 
because then you could you work in you could work in El Paso, and you could go ahead if you were booked in Odessa, uh, or <laughs> say if the next town was Odessa hypothetically, uh, whatever the next town was, you could drive there that night and get a room. That way you could spend all day the next day resting and stay in the room, and you and you could be there that night, get a good night's sleep, and then you, that was one day. I, I did I, I did the miles one time, and between Saturday afternoon and Monday night, 1,760 miles. Wow. that's that, The vehicle's going to take a hit on that. That's halfway across the country. Wouldn't want to pay for that Uber ride. If you're going from Michigan <laughs> to California, that's halfway, you know. Wow. And, and you're, you're, you're halfway to California. <laughs> and that's just around in this little circle you're going around. Yeah, you talk about brutal. Oh, my well, God. Here in Dory's story, I, I see the reason why they took off that night to get to El Paso. He says, we would arrive in El Paso around 3 a.m. and then... Go across the border, the infamous Noah Noah Club, and they would have beer there, tequila, scotch, he says, and whatever else. He, so uh, by 6 a.m., though, they're back across the border in El Paso. I talked to you just very briefly off air about this, and you said, yeah, we, we did that a few times. And you, you told me that you once crossed the border with Andre the Giant and midget wrestler Darling Dagmar. What a sight that had to be. Do you have any memories of doing this, crossing the border and going to bars in El pa- from El Paso to, to Mexico? Overnight, yeah. For some reason, I can't remember why. It seems like we walked across, and because I just remember we were going through a big portal type thing with Andre, and we're spread out kind of in a line, and uh, Andre at, at one end and Dagmar at the other. And I thought, you know, what? I wish I got I got a picture of it. But, where you know, were, you where think, were camera phones back then? You know, what exactly. I mean? <laughs> you, you think that? Oh, you you know, this is just typical. Uh, situation, you know, it'll come up again or whatever. But yeah, the the Mexican side of the border was fun. For one thing, things are a lot cheaper. Uh, the one, the reason this one bar was so popular was because it was safe. That you could go in there. You have to worry about, you know, it wasn't like a local hangout. It might have been, but on uh, they had made some kind of accommodations, or uh, the wrestlers were such good business, was such good business for them that they made sure that they weren't going to be, you know, made to feel uncomfortable or unwelcome by, say, getting stabbed or something while you were in there. So, yeah, and, and it was nice because you could also, and, and Mexico was relatively safe. Uh, I usually went, I think I usually had somebody with me. Uh, but I remember going shopping at night, uh, you know, a place to be open at midnight. Uh, a lot of tourists around. You could go in and shop for whatever, you know, and, uh, I always remembered and enjoyed uh, the haggling. <laughs> you uh, you try to argue a guy down, and finally you have to leave the store, and you're walking out the front door, and he comes back to you with another offer. And so you say no to that one. You head on down the sidewalk. You get about 20 feet away. You, you get down 20 feet away. He meets you a coming and says, okay, I'll take one more dollar off, senor. Wow. And uh, okay. that was always kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Pretty cool. I just want to be clear here. I don't want to be naive. Uh, no passports involved in this, I, I would have to imagine. Just kind of walking across the border? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I'm not sure why. I don't, I just absolutely, I don't remember. I definitely didn't have a passport, but I don't remember ever even having to like sign a, you know, I know the typical, believe me, I went through, you know, many foreign borders. I'd walk through a few too, but uh, 
<laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember. Um, I don't remember having to go through customs there. Okay. Uh, it might. It Imagine might have been that. that just for, <laughs> well. Well, you know, the, I, this you is know, not the so, first story that's that's out there from you know the Amarillo territory guys. You know, heading down to, to Mexico for these party bars and things like that. It, it all sounded uh, a little questionable to begin with. So I, I wasn't shocked when you said no passport. It just sounds like you kind of snuck across the border and back. Whether you realized it or not, Bob, that's kind of what you were doing anyway. <laughs> Perhaps. Well, you know, there's another, it just comes to me as we we're talking, that uh, another attraction of the bar was that in Mexico, or being in Mexico in, in total, was that we weren't known down there. I don't think the TV went into Mexico. Mm-hmm. So we could go on these places, and not—I mean, Andre, of course, is going to be in. Darling Dagmar, of course, are going to be recognized. But even then, people didn't—not like Andre in Japan. I mean, Andre right. would attract a hundred people by the time he walked ten feet out mm-hmm. in public. I don't remember that in Japan or in uh, Mexico. I don't remember—you know—people just running from everywhere to come over and probably see what they were seeing was real. So yeah, that was another nice attraction about it. Yeah, in a way, you have some privacy where you're trying to wind down. Think about it now. Even though it's Monday, Saturday night you were in the car all day. Sunday you were uh, you were in the car the early the first half of the day, and you had a little time to uh, to rest on Sunday afternoon. Then uh, Monday you were in the car for four, five, six hours. Now if you've got the trip for the next day, if you're going to Odessa, it wasn't that, wasn't that far. So you got you can have a night to have some fun because the next day you only have to be in the car for a couple, three hours. So that was one of the attractions of it. Uh, you so, could relax. Right. Well, Dory had another fun story here in regards to crossing the border. He says, after the show in El Paso, we were back across the border for more good times. Sometimes it was too good for our own good. One night, J.J. Dillon, Carl Von Steiger, and a couple others spent the night in a Juarez jail. They say Steiger urinated on stage at the club in Noah Noah. Uh, also stated that Gorgeous George Jr. is said one night to have smuggled a hooker out of Juarez and into El Paso in the trunk of his car. So uh, fun times to be had there at Noah Noah Club, huh? Well, well <laughs> that's a little extreme. I don't remember. Again, I was, uh, I was in a different place. Uh, I would go, you know, I would be with some of the boys in there, but right. uh, I was... I don't know if I was too square or, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that uh, being in a business, let's put it this way. If you're in the wrestling business for, say, 15 years, you're a lot more conservative when you start than you are about if you've been oh, in it for oh, 15 yeah. years. Right. After 15 years, you've seen probably everything there is to see because guys will, uh, you know, the business just provides it. Guys are always trying to outdo each other to who can be the most. Uh, we talked about Chris Colt. You know, guys who are just, we talked about Don Fargo, you know, sure. I mean, guys that just these characters that are trying, they're working hard to be characters that are so out there, you know, dragging concrete blocks with your junk. I would love to go back in time and be the booker for Amarillo and book Chris Colt and Don Fargo to the territory just to see them cross the border down there into Mexico and oh. see, oh, they probably oh, yeah. never, never make it back. I, I don't think. Uh, but no, it's I, you're, I don't think you're considered square just because you didn't try to conceal a human being and cross border with them. So <laughs> I, I think you're OK there, Bob. But uh, I just thought that was a funny story. Now, while we're here still on Monday, before we move on, you already gave it away. You know, tomorrow's Odessa. So 
you're 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 ahead of the game as far as the trivia quiz go the quiz goes here. <laughs> but um No, no, you're fine. I, I'm happy. That's fine with me. But also, like I said, split shows here on Monday. Now earlier prior to you working here, I believe Abilene was Fridays. But uh, by the time you got there it was a split town. Some people went to El Paso, some went to Abilene. So I figure while we're here we can get to that in just a minute. But first, briefly on, on El Paso, the local promoter there was actually Gory Guerrero. Was he promoting when you were there? Yes. Yeah. Do you have any memories of Gory or any of his kids running around or anything like that? I remember uh, meeting Gory, but I was, uh, again, in my own mind, I was very low on the pecking order because I wasn't, you know, here's a guy who's been in business his whole life, and I'm a, a basically a, a not just a newcomer to pro wrestling, I'm a newcomer to show business, too. This is like uh, the, the twilight zone for me in some ways, and so... Yeah, I met him, but I, I I don't know if I was even comfortable enough to try to engage him and like, hey, how's it going? And I'm blah, blah, blah. So, uh, and also when I saw him in El Paso, he was busy. You know, we were having a show. So he had things to do. I thought, <laughs> if he's a typical promoter, one thing he was going to spend most of his time, you better spend your time in the box office because that's where the money is. And that's where the money disappears from if you're not there to watch it. I'm surprised we saw him around the dressing room at all. He might drop through. He certainly never spent any time in there. I'm trying to think. There was a very famous uh, Lucha Libre, uh, El... El Santo? El Santo worked a couple of shows there. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, oh, was he over with uh, the Hispanic folk. Yeah, I can can only imagine. Well, the guy, when he took his mask off, he looked about 80 uh, his body looked pretty good, but he had he had the signs of age. I mean, mm-hmm. some sagging and some wrinkles, but I mean, he still looked very fit. But the, you know, the guy was a living legend. You talk about we talk about us legends who have to get to be like seventy five years old and still be alive and say, right. "Hey, we've run out of real legends. We need some some new ones here. Let's get these old ones." No, he was still alive. He was certainly a god, not just of lucha libre, but of Mexico in general. He had. Dozens of movies and everything. I mean, he was yeah. like a, a superstar down there, Hollywood yeah. superstar in Mexico, really. You know, it's, I'm curious because he never seemed to be real. I mean, he wasn't morose or glum or anything, but he was quiet. And, oh, I mean, uh, he is a, a major, big, heavy hitter. And he was the main event on the show, or at least one of them on the, the show in El Paso. So, mm-hmm. but he always was, again, kind of quiet and okay. I was always, I'm just reflecting here as I think about it. I'm wondering. Right. If he was gone, now you say he's made all these movies and everything. I'm sure on the set of the movie, he probably had his own, uh, you know, room or maybe a uh, like a trailer or something. Uh, right. Was treated with like you know, given star turn royalty, and, right? Yeah, yeah, royalty. Here he is in the dressing room in El Paso, sweaty, yeah. hot, <laughs> bunch of nasty wrestlers hungover, <laughs> stinking, burping. Martin, <laughs> yeah. Oh, this part of my glamorous legend. I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I appreciate it. Probably making a call to figure out what his next movie is going to be. Yeah, <laughs> that's why you didn't well, see him too often. He was. He was do, doing. Th- yeah. <laughs> well, I. You know, I, I. When I saw once, and when I saw him work for like a guy who was looked like an old man, he still had to move. Oh my God! Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you have him in the dressing room, and then you have the McGuire boys come through, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> they were regulars in El Paso too, because Gory Guerrero is uh, the one who quote unquote trained them. He kind of found them and, and got them their start in professional wrestling. 
Benny, Benny and Billy McGuire, the, the, the two big gigantic, what, however, six, 800 pounds, whatever they were, the twins that were very yeah. famous in the old Guinness book, a world record picture, those, those two on the motorcycles. I wonder, yeah, I wonder what, I wonder why you did to train them. <laughs> <laughs> Feed them pulled chickens at a time. <laughs> Take them to buffets. I mean, <laughs> you can't do much. You're just gonna. I'm assuming maybe he got a couple uh, bucks off of booking them out. Would be my guess. I mean, that's the only thing I can come up with. Why Gory would, uh, t- you know, obviously they they were famous to a degree. They were in the Guinness Book and, and things like that. They were likely on you know some of the TV programs of the time. They, they made their rounds in some of the territories anyway. Well, you know, I never watched them work. I never saw a match of theirs. I should look it up. Well, but I can't imagine they could ever go off their feet. If they were close enough to the ropes, they might be able to get up. But if they didn't have the ropes to help them, there's no way they could get up, is there? I don't think their arms would be long enough to get all that uh, adipose off the mat. Right. But I, and I'm not trying to just No, no, I, I get what you're saying. But I, I'm, I mean, watching them work. And there's a few matches out there on YouTube. You can go Google it if you want to. But uh, I was just going to say, they make Haystacks Calhoun look like Ricky Steamboat in there. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> At least Haystacks got it. And if you go back and watch Haystacks from the 50s and stuff, he was a worker by definition, okay? Uh, these guys, I don't know that they ever really got it like that to that degree. And I'm not trying to you know, downplay anything, that, whatever they had to go through to, to make it from town to town and do whatever they did here. But uh, again, Haystacks Calhoun was a pro wrestler. He was a gimmick, but he was a pro wrestler. Versus these two, I think they were just kind of showbiz, so to speak. Showbiz, and, yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's basically what they were they were booked off of. But I just right. I thought it was funny you mentioned them in El Paso specifically, and that would have been ma- mostly where they appeared down here, especially at this point in time. This had to be very early in their career. Well, they would be an attraction, like you say, showbiz. But they would be an attraction if you, fans could just now all the big big guys. Usually, they did a splash for a finish, right? Or at least at some time they did it uh, in their careers. I've had to be hard on the knees and elbows. I don't know if they could do it for 20 years. But uh, I imagine that fans would say, well, if we could just get the killer Carl Cox down and have one of these guys fall on him, <laughs> even fall on him backwards, you know, <laughs> they're certainly gonna, probably going to crumple him. Yeah. And that's what, we, that's what we'd like to see. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll go watch them. Maybe they'll trip and fall. <laughs> even if these guys are all faking it, we hope they'll trip and fall on Cox and break both his legs. Now, so. young, young naive me, when I first heard that Gory Guerrero was the one that trained them, I said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the Guerreros, right? And all the great work they did in the ring. And you go look at the little bit that exists of Gory's work in the ring. And you, you ask yourself, what the hell did Gory, te- what could he teach him? Like you asked me, what, what did he teach him? What could Gory yeah. Guerrero teach them? But, you know, as I got older, I realized only well, didn't have to teach him a whole lot. It wasn't, no. it wasn't about that. Right. Yeah. So. But I just uh, I wanted to throw that out there while you dropped their names there. It, it totally made sense. And El Santo, yeah, there were certain people that did appear in El Paso that didn't really wrestle the entire circuit, and those were some of the names. No, yeah, uh, definitely El Santo. Never saw him anywhere else. But you know, it's kind of nice to to see someone who's part of wrestling history. I mean, he was around I don't know what thirty or forty years before I ever got in the business. So you know, it's nice. You know, he's like he is the legend that. You know, millions of people saw this guy, about maybe multi-millions. Do you, you know, remember uh, if uh, Black Gordman or Goliath were there when you were working in 71? Uh, I don't think they were. Okay. I don't remember them. I All did right. look at the names that uh, we, we shared and, you know, Alex Perez and uh, Big Boy uh, Luke. And, uh, you know, I, I did work against those guys, but 
there wasn't anything special about the match. Okay. In turn, in turn, I don't even remember the matches with with Carl Cox or with uh, Pac Song or with Terry or with Dory Jr. Uh, I don't remember the details of the match. Right. In fact, I only remember working with Dory one time in Amarillo, and I worked with him several times, including almost 40 minutes, one match. You'd think I'd remember that. Yeah, I can't wait but till again, we get into that stuff because that is some amazing shit, Bob. <laughs> well, the thing is, again, I've said it many times, but I want to repeat it. If the matches went well, they had to go on a file that's buried really deep because I had a lot of matches, and I and I watched a lot of matches. So um, I watched 10 times more than I had myself by far because that was my job as a booker. So if I don't remember everything, it's, again, it's because the match went well, which is nice. I mean, if uh, Pac Song had screwed up and, you know, busted me open the hard way, I say, from my knee to my elbow, <laughs> yeah. I would remember that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, it didn't happen. Everything apparently <laughs> went okay. Uh, now, being with Junior, uh, Dory Junior, obviously, or with Senior, or with Terry, uh, with those you guys. You them all. Well, but the thing is, I had them to help me in a match. Right. Uh, do you think I, you think I led the match with Dory Junior? <laughs> Even if I was a heel? <laughs> no. I'll tell you what, I bet if you tried, you probably wouldn't have been there six months. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. There's no way. And, and for context, guys, Dory Jr. is about two years into his world title run at this point, too. Just, yes. Just... <laughs> well, he, would, he would be able to tell by just maybe the look on my face or the way my left hand was pointing what I had in mind. And by the time I went to make my move, he'd be somewhere else. So I'd be walking around <laughs> the room trying just to get him to tie up with me. Right. Or walking around the ring, getting him to tie up until finally say, well, uh, are you ready to listen there, fat boy? Because I'm going to leave this rodeo here. I'm not, I'm not, I, I know I can have a good match leave. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure what you might produce. So I, I think, I think we'll do it my way. And of course, you know, I, we talked about it in the past in Albuquerque, which since we were there before we leave it completely, 45 minutes with Harley race one time. Mm -hmm. And again, the thinking I had like five, six minutes of material. I'm thinking, oh, my God, for 45 minutes? Well, I don't remember that match at all. And Harley led it, of course. And it was, he, it was great. It was a good match. It was very good. Right. He got, he got a ton of heat. Because of that, I don't have any problem at that time with those guys. And besides, if I was a babyface, he was supposed to lead the match. But even when I was a heel, uh, when I went up against guys that were experienced guys, I didn't have any problem letting them lead. Uh, I mean, it wasn't ego. It was to have a good match. The idea is to have a good match. And right. you got some guy that's, you know, got tons of experience. Uh, you're not going to take advantage of it. You're going to say, well, wait a minute. My six months of experience is worth, you know, it's equal to his 20 years. So, I, no, we're going to do it my way. No. Uh, now, with Pac Song, I, I, I'd love to have a master video of master of Pac Song because he was just starting. He was green. I was green. Uh, you don't by any chance know who was managing him back in Amarillo, do you? In Amarillo? I don't know. I know Buck Robley was doing some managing at that point because maybe it was after his uh, injury because I know he manages Parenti and Bobby Hart there. I don't know if, who, yeah. if anybody was managing. Uh, somebody had to have been, I guess, speaking for Pac Song for television or whatnot, but I don't have any information in front of me right now. I can I can try to look it up. Um, but well, it's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not important. It, well, he had Hart. He had, uh, let's see. He did. Did he have Roby? I think he did have Roby somewhere. It just 
I, I tried to look for it. I couldn't find it. It just didn't say where where those guys managed him. I know that he had Gary Hart in Florida. He was part of Hart's army. So uh, good matches with, with uh, the Funks, uh, all three of them. Go back to when I went up and said, well, I'm, I'll be leaving in two weeks. Yeah. All three of them put me over the week before. Can't, what? Can't wait till we, we get, get to that. Uh, you guys are running split crews here in 1971. Now, at some point, Abilene was on Fridays, but at this point, it's also on Mondays alongside El Paso. So while we are still here on Monday, I figure we might as well talk a little bit about Abilene, Texas, the promoter there. Don the Lawman Slatton, who just also happened to be a wrestler at the same time. Oh, he would no Don. You, you know, Don, what a character he is uh, <laughs> or was. Yeah, great sense of humor. Abilene to me was like almost out of the loop because I didn't go there that often. I didn't. I wasn't there like every week for uh, like six weeks at a time. I don't think I. Ever, I don't know if I ever got into a program down there where I would come back you know, several weeks in a row because I was wrestling the same guy with some kind of feud between us. But uh, he was a funny guy. He set me up with a great rib. He kept showing me these pictures of uh, of fish that he caught. And uh, one of them was a catfish. It was about three and a half, four feet long. He told me that he caught it. He didn't catch it with a rod and reel. He caught it by uh, going down into this uh, the edge of a lake where there, there was catfish holes that these catfish would would go in to hide and wait for prey to go by suck up a smaller fish or whatever and so what you do is you you know you have a glove so that you know their barbs or whatever don't get your their teeth he said you reach in there and when you find them you get the gill and you pull them out well he kept messing around with that he kept showing me this pictures and the, the catfish got bigger and he kept finally he talked me into Going one day, uh, for some reason, it'll stayed over in Abilene, stayed with him. He talked me into, we had become uh, quasi-friends. I liked the guy, and he had a great sense of humor, but uh, he talked me into going out into this lake. It was cold, man. That water was cold. It was like, like a spring or something. And uh, <laughs> I was I was up to my up to my shoulder in this pit, uh, this hole, Ugh. groping for, for some reason, groping for catfish. And uh, it turns out there was never any catfish in that hole. <laughs> he got those he got those catfish somewhere else. Well, he's taking all. He's got the camera. He said, "Yeah, oh, I'm going to. When you pull that catfish down, I'm going to take the picture." He was taking pictures of me, uh, you know, with my the water up to my lower lip, <laughs> you know, reaching reaching in a hole looking for the mythical non-existent catfish. He bought it a flea. Uh, you a were the catfish. Now yeah, he's got the, yeah. the new picture. Well, no, a different kind of fish. I was a sucker. Sucker fish. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, I how can you not laugh when you put guy, you go in the dressing room and there's pictures all up on the wall on the blackboard and everything of you, of you with a, up to, you know, up to your ears in water, uh, looking for the mythical catfish. And they start saying things like, uh, uh, yeah, there haven't been any fish in, in that pond for 27 years or something like that. All the boys look at you going, hey, oh, Don, you got another one, didn't you? Well, you know, I could you not, I, I had to laugh myself. Right. Funny. But he was, he was, uh, you know, he wasn't a bad worker either. He, he could work, and I, I, I don't know if I ever worked with him, but 
I don't remember his matches being stinkaroos because I would remember them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones that were just absolutely, totally embarrassing. I, I kind of remember those. I'd like to forget them, but I can't sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, he was a, he was a good guy. He was uh, he was fun. That was a thing. Uh, Herman Gus, the brother-in-law senior, uh, he, he got all the heat. Senior and Junior and Terry would all tell everybody who had a problem to go talk to Herman. Well, Herman was <laughs> the one to handle problems. You know, he was a bookkeeper. Oh, they loved him so much they gave him the uh, Colorado cities to promote. Yeah, <laughs> let's so, keep her. Let's keep Herman away. Yeah, so you go to to talk to Herman, you walk in the door, he acts like he hates your guts. I've never seen him before. He looked like he just caught you with his wife or something. And so, (laughs) so, yeah, it was a lot of fun talking to him. Uh, Yeah, Herman was, uh, yeah, so compared to him, uh, and and Terry and Dory, not Dory Jr. was never a yuck it up guy. He was always kind of sober and sure. And not nothing against him. That's just the way he is. You're kidding and me, senior, Dory. <laughs> and senior and Terry were the cutouts, but you know you don't have time. You're on the road. How much time you got in the dressing room to to have fun and cut up and all that? You don't. You're right. too tired most of the time. So right. and it's business yeah, to a degree. I'm I'm sure. Yeah, you, you guys are getting in there and trying to get the hell out of there. <laughs> Slayton, yeah, he got that he got that nickname, the Lawman, because I, I think he served on the Abilene Police Force before he became a professional wrestler. So he had a little background in law enforcement. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm sitting here thinking that I had the impression he was still working, and that he uh, may have been. He may have been. I I know he was like a I'm not sure though. Okay, I know he was doing something on the side at some point, but. Uh, Dory had a, a story he wanted to share here in regards to the the ring in Abilene. I don't know if you remember this. He said, the lawman's ring was never too good. I remember wrestling Jack Briscoe there, and the whole ring fell apart one time. Now, our publicity said the match was so great that the ring fell apart. But the truth was, the ring was simply the shits. So, but what a, what a great publicity. And I was like, oh, my God, Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr. literally tore the house, tore the ring down. No, no, the ring sucked. That's what it was. But I just, I love that story there from Dory. Yeah, the, my two salient, I mean, it's memories. Well, the, only, the ones that are coming up are the only ones that are coming up. So mm-hmm. one of them is Johnny Valentine. I talked earlier about Johnny Valentine, seeing Johnny Valentine work. And I think I'm pretty sure it was there because he wasn't in the territory. And I'm not sure how he got booked in there, but I just seem to remember it, it was there. Mm-hmm. I saw him work a match and he worked similar to he had in Florida. Uh, with Jack Briscoe, but he didn't have, uh, he only had about half the time, but he basically worked the same way, and the match was good. The other one was um, Carl Cox taking on a fan who decided he didn't like what Carl was doing, and so did something stupid like kicking or something as he went by, and Carl decided the guy needed a nap, so he gave him one with about four four little quick punches, (laughs) and the guy decided he wanted to go to sleep, and uh, I was very impressed. Uh, Carl was uh, fun to be with, and he was a jolly guy, but I really don't kick the guy. Don't don't piss him off. Yeah. It's funny. For the things you say you don't remember, you do remember so many things so well. You talked about Johnny Valentine. I just did a quick search here. Johnny comes in twice while you're here, both times in Abilene. So maybe he had something to do with Slatton. Maybe they got along, and he booked him out here a couple of times because Johnny only comes to town twice over that six-month period, both times here in Abilene, Texas. So uh, wow. that's probably likely where you saw him. One time against Terry yeah. Funk, and I didn't see his opponent in the other matchup. But, yeah, so Johnny was there a couple of times during this time period. So that's likely is where, where you saw him, like you said. 
I'm sure I'm sure it was. And the thing is, it's through process of elimination because there's no place else I could have seen. Okay. Yeah, and that's kind of what I remember of the building and the, all that because uh, I do. I remember what the ring and the audience looked like because I remember Carl beating up the guy. It was, it was, the ring was behind him. <laughs> right. So, uh, well, I mean, Carl getting out of the ring, he's all calm, cool, and collected. This guy does something like whack, 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 and Carl just continues down, down on his way back to the locker room. The guy's laying there like a pile of goo. And so uh, I'm glad to, I'm glad to see, have that substantiated that, it was Abilene because I again in my memory I just did I couldn't see any other building that I, that it could have been in. So, did yeah. you ever hear the story about Don Slatton winning the NWA World Title? No, I haven't. Oh God, yeah. Uh, he put himself over. He takes off as fast as he can with the NWA title back to the locker room. I don't know what he was expecting to happen here, but the story goes: Harley Race gets out of the ring, goes directly to the back, grabs him, takes his ass back to the fucking ring. And kicks his ass and takes the belt back. You weren't going to screw Harley Race over. I, I'm sure Slatton just wanted it in the papers, whatever the case may be. I know he wasn't trying to keep the NWA world title, but whatever he was going for, Harley wasn't having any of it. Why would you screw with Harley Race? That's the wrong. That is really the wrong guy to mess around with. You, know, you might be safer with Bruiser Brody, God rest in peace, than Harley, also rest in peace. Harley was the heel, and he's the one going and grabbing the baby face, dragging his ass back out to the ring, you know, and taking his belt back. It's hilarious. I'm curious if Don was doing as a rip. Uh, if he was serious, he was out of his mind. Maybe he wasn't. <laughs> maybe the reason he was so funny is because he really was crazy. <laughs> yeah, you got you got to be to mess with Harley Race there. So uh, we'll we'll move on to the following day. You already said Odessa on Tuesday. Now this is what Dory said he did. On Mondays after they worked Abilene or El Paso, he says, after the show, we always made a trip to Impact, Texas, because Abilene was a dry town and a one city block incorporated itself and voted wet so they could sell beer. So one city street was <laughs> who had wet. You could have beer and the rest of the town was dry. Very, very weird. They, made, they became incorporated just so they could sell beer. And he goes on. This is really odd. He says the only drawback was they had to sell the beer at room temperature. I don't know anything about this dry county, wet county kind of stuff, but uh, he said we would load up the beer, ice it down, and in 20 minutes we were good to go to the next town. I'm assuming you, maybe you didn't partake in that, that type of situation because you had a lot of other things going on, but I found it humorous. Yeah, I, I'm not saying I was – I mean, I drank, but I, I don't remember uh, – not like in Florida when you're with other guys. Uh, I don't think I was drinking beer on the way on these trips because okay. you, I'm not surprised. and. Uh, I don't. I don't remember again ever ever shopping for beer. I had another memory of Abilene, of getting gas there for twenty one cents a gallon. And now again, would it be in uh, what? What are we in nineteen seventy one? Yeah, yeah, twenty one cents a gallon. I and it was that was cheaper than anywhere else in Texas I'd been. So, but even in other places, it wasn't more than say thirty cents. Right. So it's hard to believe that you know at one time. You know, going to Europe uh, a couple of years later, uh, and gas, gas in Europe was like it is here in this country. Gas was four or five bucks a gallon, which when you're used to like less than, you know, like 50 cents or mm -hmm. 30 cents a gallon in the, in the United States, that those prices in Europe are outrageous. But then you know, we caught up, didn't we? Well, 21 cents a gallon today would be a $1.62, so you'd still come out pretty damn good if, if it were oh, yeah. still rolling with the uh, – 
the, uh, the inflation uh, and not just jacking prices up here. But yeah, that's not bad. 21 cents a gallon. Uh, uh, you guys need uh, prices like that driving from town to town the way these the mileage that you guys are doing here in Texas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Terry was wanting to keep the you know pedal to the metal all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90 miles an hour burns gas at a little higher rate than, say, 45. We we used yeah we burned a lot of gas. I remember you know another thing about Don was that senior could be fun, but senior when you're in the dressing room and Terry in the dressing room they were serious because they were management and everybody else they owned a promotion. Everybody else was labor, so they were. I'm not saying they not private. Terry both you both of them in private were congenial. They were you know they might say something amusing or, you know, they would be uh, one-on-one with you. They wouldn't be the boss. They'd be another, uh, just another wrestler. But uh, Don Slatton or Slayton, I mean, as far as I was concerned, he's a local promoter, so he's management too. Right. But he was more one of the boys Okay. Uh, as far as I was concerned. And it was kind of a, it was nice. It was kind of a nice relief. Not that I'm going to take advantage of it, but I was, I was having this, uh, still in my mode of uh, rank and based on experience and, and longevity and pecking order. And I was still felt myself way down at pecking order compared with all these other guys who've been around three or four or five or 10 times longer than I had. So it was nice to have someone like Don who, well, you know, in order to rip somebody like he did me, you have to, you have to gain their confidence. Mm-hmm. That's what a con man does. <laughs> That's why it's called confidence, man. He gains your confidence before he screws you. So at least all he was after was uh, a laugh. He wasn't after my pocketbook. So right. um, I, I don't hold That's, it against that's him. good. Right, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's harmless if they're not rip, ripping you off, I, I guess, in one way or shape or form. Yeah. Well, absolutely. the thing is, even even if even if, if, if make people a lot of people laughing at you, at least they're laughing, you know, rather than, you know, Nobody was saying, well, you you know, okay, uh, you're a laughing stock now. Get out of the dressing room. Your career's over. I mean, it wasn't like that. Uh, you know, I, it actually made me more like one of the boys. And also, it also depended on how I took it. If I'd gotten mad and went and slapped him or beat him up or something, then, you know, I'd come across as a total jerk. And there were guys that were like that. They didn't, they didn't have a sense of humor, uh, wouldn't take being kidded or being, you know, right. being ripped. Yeah. And nobody, you know, you didn't want to be around people like that because you got to watch. You know, where here we are on a road with somebody like ten hours a day, four days a week, and you can't you know, joke and make fun of them or try to you know, pretend. A big, big thing in the car was to pick on somebody and try to make them mad, especially when they're rookies, and make them mad where they get right. All right, stop the car. We're gonna fight, you know. You stop a bitch. You stop the car. I'm gonna kill you. Yeah, and they, heard those you, stories. Oh yeah. And just, what? what is, you know, we're just kidding. What, what is your problem? Oh, what, you got a horrible attitude. What is your problem? You know. And uh, and I'm telling you, thank God I was never foolish enough to fall for that. I don't know. Right, right. They might have been. They might have been afraid to rib me that way. Maybe thinking, well, they knew already. I was stretching people because Graham had me doing it, not just in the in the snake pits auditorium. I remember taking on five guys in Tampa one night in the ring. Right. So um, now, uh, so yeah, guys were saying, "Well, we know this guy can handle can handle himself, and maybe me too." 
I'm not going to try to find out, but right. you know, making them see how. And I, I believe me, I understood completely because I, if I'd been with Dr. Dusty Williams in his first two or three years in the business, I don't know if I would have ever read to him about anything. <laughs> I get you. I, I totally, yeah. total, totally get you. Oh, yeah. my God. So you guys, let's say you're leaving El Paso here. This is what Dory said he would do. He said, leaving El Paso for Odessa begins with I-75, but I always took a shortcut through Orla, Texas, a small town between El Paso and Odessa. Did you take I-75 or did you trip through Orla here? Because if you went through Orla, I was going to ask you a question because Dory tells a story. I want 75. Is there a woman involved in the small town? No, no. He says, at the crossroad in the road was a gas station owned by a man by the name of Rattlesnake Phillips. And we always like to stop there and see what kind of rattlesnake gimmicks he would have. He said for first timers, rookies to the territory, he would show them a cage with what he had called a rattle cat in it. Combination rattlesnake bobcat. Uh, Just when they would get their nose close enough to the cage, Rattlesnake Phillips would push a button and the door would fly open and an old bobcat hide would fly out in your lap. It scared the hell out of the first timers. So I was curious if it happened to you. That's why I was asking. Oh, no. I Again, I travel by myself most of the time so or with my girlfriend. So right. I'm not real sorry about missing that one, frankly. <laughs> I, I don't know how much laughing I do at a rhythm. I've got to go clean my drawers. Yeah. So, Ooh, so, man. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you make the trip, though, to Odessa here for the Ector County Coliseum, and the promoter there was Rowdy Pat O'Dowdy. Any re- any memories of Pat O'Dowdy? Yeah, not a bit. You know, okay. nothing comes to mind. I, mm-hmm. I should I should have looked up a picture of him. But, again, uh, the promoters, they're taking care of the money. I, I remember when I promoted shows, what I was doing. Um, you're, you're in the box office. You know, yeah. you're making sure that everything's appropriate and Again, there's 100, 200, 300 ways for people in box officers knows what they're doing for them to steal money and sometimes do it right in front of you. Uh, they're moving the money from one drawer to another, and you ask them, what are you doing? Well, the top of dial over here needs a more of this or that. And, that, you know, they give you mumbo jumbo, and you don't know whether they're on the, you know, what they don't know. You don't even know what they're talking about. So unless you're a CPA or someone who, I don't know if even that would do it. Yeah, but unless you're somebody who is wise to the, all the strategies that can go on in a box office, you can steal people blind if you have the wherewithal if you yeah. wish to do it. Well, apparently here in Odessa, another ring that was a stinkeroo, according to Dory, he said, if you hit the ropes on one side, the other side would fly up in the air. So finally, one week, Terry Funk comes in with tools from his car. And he tries to fix it, but it doesn't last very long. So not a good ring. Do you remember? I'm not. I don't mean this specific ring, but do you remember certain cities or certain towns in your career anywhere where you hated to go simply because of the ring, whether it was too hard, like like concrete, or you were afraid that it might fall apart at any minute? Hmm. I don't remember specific places, but okay. uh, occasionally there would be buildings that had rings, like uh, some arenas or coliseums or. Mm-hmm. And, and our places, but a lot of times they were boxing rings. And boxing rings and wrestling rings are completely different. A boxing ring is usually made out of metal, or if it is wood, uh, it's firmly supported underneath. They want the, the footing to be completely stable. Say the McGuire twins are jumping up and down on the boards, they don't want the ring rising and falling. They want it to remain solid because when boxers are fighting, you know, footwork is important. 
And if you put your foot down and the, the ring moves, well, it's going to throw you off. So a boxing ring has to be real solid. Yeah. Well, you're getting slammed by under the giant or somebody on that ring uh, if you're foolish enough to call for it. Uh, it's different than when you're on a, a ring that has plenty of padding and has a nice spring in the middle where, or somewhere to where it has give to it. If, you have the, if the ring has give, the force of, the, of your weight and all that, the physical weight times mass and velocity, the force that's created goes into the ring. Without it, the force comes right back into your body. And you know, that's where bones get broken, muscles get bruised, and ligaments get torn, and that kind of thing. So, but you know what? When, when guys are young and green, they don't care sometimes about what kind of ring it is. They're going to do their they're going to do the thing. I remember working with David San Martino, Bruno's son, and yeah. for some reason it wasn't because uh, Bruno wasn't there. I mean, I don't know exactly why, but I had him slam me six times, and I think two of them. Are, I think I was trying to put him over as a strong. He was a well-built young guy. Yeah, I think, I think as I was, a teenager, he was like dubbed the, the strongest teenager or something like that in the United States at one point. He was a power lifter or something. Okay, that's why then. I think I'm glad I don't remember that. I don't remember. I remember vaguely. I remember what his face looked like. But he would, I know he had the strong gimmick. So I thought I would do different things. And it would always end up with him getting out of it by slamming me. Two of them were in the ring. I remember it was a hard ring. And four of them were on the floor, I think. But again, I was young in the business, and I wanted the match to get over. And I also, I kind of knew how, uh, from my paratrooper training in the service, I kind of knew how to fall uh, without hurting myself too bad now. <laughs> uh, say I didn't hurt myself too bad. Yeah. Both has, both shoulders are placed. Uh, how well? Well, that sounds like you really know what you're doing, Bob. So you're telling but, me you're not making a comeback then at this point, I guess. No, no, okay. no. <laughs> Well, you know what? Once they fix them, uh, you actually could. Uh, once they fix everything, you're, it's like, no, the bones, the bone and all the stuff that was messed up is gone. Right. Now you've got plastic or vinyl or Teflon or, or steel or whatever you've got in there. You've got a new joint. You could actually go back and do it if you wanted to. And you, we talked about uh, Spaceman, uh, Frank, Frank Hickey, what was it, yeah. 84? Yeah, whatever it was, yeah. In so, 1993, Spaceman well, Frank Hickey, yeah. Well, I've got three years before I qualify to try well, a match, Frank. You, you do have to go watch that match if you want to call him working. I mean, there's a, <laughs> the definition of work. It's, you know, it's, it's subjective, I guess, <laughs> as to what he does in that matchup. But yeah, he does appear. That was it was so cool to see him pop up there, uh, so late, you know, in his life. But that was it was really funny. But um, I so you don't have a whole lot about Odessa. So we will move on to the following day. And so far, you're four for four on days and cities, Bob. So you're doing a great job. And I'm I'm going to give you a bonus. I'm going to give you five for five because Friday is spot shows. So you could might guess a, a city or two, but you'll never get 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 it right, I guess uh, per se. So we got Wednesday and Thursday left. So you leave Odessa and Wednesday. You're off to. Lovell? Lubbock. Close enough. Lubbock. I'll give it to you. Lubbock. I'm going to give it to you. Lovell. Yeah. Lovell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even close. Well, that I was got close enough. You got, you got, Lubbock. You got that's right. Most of it. Lovell. Yeah. There's no Lovell anywhere in the country. <laughs> no city named well, Lovell. I wouldn't say that. There's there's all sorts of weird, weird ass cities. But yeah. Yeah. yeah Lovell. Am I right? 
Yeah, you're right. I said I'll give it to you. Absolutely. Yeah, Lubbock. Very good. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. says uh, Wednesdays in Lubbock, Texas, working for Nick Roberts, who was the father of the future baby doll, the valet of the 1980s, uh, Nicola Roberts. But Nick Roberts here, a promoter in the city of Lubbock. I have no memories of him or the town. Okay. You didn't even know the, the how to pronounce the name, so I, I totally get it. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, <laughs> it, it really. Well, you know, it was a. It was a. It seemed like we worked in a like a small college gym or something. I, maybe I'm wrong there, but it's, it was a nicer, a nicer building, uh, and it seemed like I remember that it was nicer surroundings. You were it, it wasn't old and musty and dirty and uh, like some of the places, especially right. spot shows. Um, you know, they had showers and, you know, all the amenities. Uh, but again, nothing. Think, what happened in Lubbock? Well, while, well, you're, thought, while you're thinking, I'll read you a story Dory told about Lubbock. I love it. It's, it's classic Carney pro wrestling, by the way. Okay. He says one night in Lubbock, the show started and the Coliseum lights went out. We opened up the doors in the back of the building and pulled several pickup trucks in and shine the lights on the ring. And the show went on to completion. I wrote, R A S S L I N. Now that's wrestling. That's there you go. Oh yeah, uh, we, we will do anything better than give people their money. Yeah. No refunds. Anything. Yeah. Anything. Hey fans, anybody driving a truck, pull it in the back and shine your lights on the ring. Yeah. You know, there you go. Yeah. So are. not only do they pay for the tickets now, unless they want their battery to die, they're also wasting gas, right? So yeah, I can imagine the fumes if they did leave the car running, but. Maybe they were just using the battery. I don't know, but I just found it hilarious. All the lights went out. Hey, guys, pull some cars in. Unbelievable. Of course. What a story. Only yeah. in wrestling. Only in wrestling. Oh, I'm surprised <laughs> they, if they couldn't have gotten the cars. I'm surprised they didn't say, well, yeah, didn't you get the advertisement? <laughs> These are all lights out matches. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Insert the uh, rim shot there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I love it. But, uh, oh, man. Well, uh, Lubbock. What happened in Lubbock? If I think of it. Yeah, we can revisit. Absolutely. Well, we're gonna. it's going to take another show at least to get through the Amarillo territory. Okay. Lots of names to t still talk about after this. So, and, and look at some of your matches. So if you come up with anything, we always got next week as well. Uh, but you leave, okay. Lu you leave Lubbock and you head off Thursday to... Let's see. Amarillo on Thursday? Amarillo on Thursday. That's it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I should have known it. I thought it was Friday, but yeah, that, that makes sense, because Lubbock is closer to Amarillo. Okay, Amarillo, yeah, I had it all the time. This yeah. is the big town. This is this is the uh, the main city, if you will, uh, of the territory. This is where your TV's out of on Saturdays, and you guys are making the, the round trip from Lubbock back to Amarillo. Dory says was about a 100-mile drive. Now, that's not too bad. No, no, not at all. Yeah, getting home from there was not terribly honest. I mean, you got home before... The middle of the, you know, like the middle of the morning. I was going to say, it sounds uh, like you would probably get a good night's sleep, maybe some time with the family if you have one. So it, it's not, it's not glorious by any means, but it's something more than some of these other towns where you're driving all night just to get to the next city. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't even remember the dressing room in Amarillo. I don't remember the building that much. I, one memory I have is senior was senior, Dory Funk senior was wrestling in a match. He went down his boots and his tights. And he had a holiday end uh, around his neck, like uh, Buddy Rogers was uh, having a towel, but Buddy'd have a robe or two, you know, with it. Right. And uh, I just, I just, <laughs> I guess I remember thinking at the time, why, why would you take a holiday end down, <laughs> down, down the ring? 
advertising. You stole a towel from Holiday Inn, but I, you know, they didn't care. I, I was. <laughs> they, he was advertising the Holiday Inn. Of course, they didn't. Well, care. I guess <laughs> I don't know if they were paying him something because <laughs> I was going to uh, say they probably gave him a free room for stealing the towel. <laughs> hey, I put it on TV, guys. Could have been, <laughs> but uh, funny. I don't remember the being around Amarillo uh, because you weren't on the road. I don't remember a whole lot of what was going on. I don't remember. I do remember wrestling uh, Dory Funk Jr. in Amarillo, which for, I think it was, I think it was a title match, maybe not. But uh, again, that was an honor. But I was too inexperienced to really appreciate it because the setting was so different from Madison Square Garden or Miami or St. Louis or. It, it was so different, and I, I really, I, I'm wrong in saying this, but it seemed to me like it was like the minor leagues in a sense, because it wasn't cosmopolitan at all. And also, some of the towns were horrible. The place where you get no shower, no, right. <laughs> you had to go outside to take a leak. So I think there might have been a an outhouse or something, if you needed to, to do any more than that, you know, you, you have that place the night before. I don't care if you're in a, uh, maybe you're in Madison Square Garden the next night. If that one, the one the night before is part of the territory, well, uh, that territory doesn't really doesn't look all that great. I don't care if you've got a, a garden or not. But yeah, by having been to those other places and, and also, the monotony, you talk about monotony of the road, because there was no, there was no, nothing to see. Now, Florida could get monotonous too. Uh, palm trees are, a lot of, there's a lot of pine trees in Florida alongside the highways. But even if in tropical parts, you know, it can be monotonous too. But at least there's a, a variety of things. And there's some green, there's green stuff out there. Right. Uh, when it's hot, and when it's hot out there in, Amarillo area, South Texas. Wow, everything's dark, you know, darker. It's brown, dried out. Uh, like I say, tarantulas crossing the road and monotonous. Well, it I, was get, very, I get it. It wasn't the most glamorous of territories, but it was truly rich in wrestling history, at least through the Funk's time period there, anyway. Yes. So yes. we can look back on it fondly, but maybe the guys making the trips, they can remember it a little differently. And I get why when you can't shower and it's, you know, 100 plus degrees and. You know, you're rolling up and down these roads with nothing to do, nothing to see, no internet, no cell phones, none of that stuff either to keep you entertained. Right. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I totally get you. And I would imagine certain areas, the radio probably wasn't even coming in very well because you're so many hours no. in between any big cities. Exactly. And to qualify what I said, I would look at it completely different today. Going in there as an experienced wrestler, if I had gone in there later in my career, I would have considered it just as valuable as the Master Square Garden or anybody else mm -hmm. because it's the wrestling part that counts. It's not the building. Yeah. It's 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 what, what goes on in the ring. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about wrestling. We're not talking about going on a tour. We could talk about going on a tour of all the great cathedrals in Europe, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about wrestling. So, yeah, the fact that there was one world champion while I was there and one in waiting, a world champion in waiting, that I was working with in matches one-on-one -on -one right. early in his career, that, of course, has to now what tremendous significance it has. I'm honored that I had that opportunity. Uh, again, at the time, I just didn't appreciate it. 
mainly because I didn't know I didn't I didn't understand the business, the history of the business at all. I again, I told I had some other things on my mind. But I look at that now, and working with Psycho Negro, Pak Song, uh, oh, all kinds of different people, the Funks, right. uh, uh, Harley Race, yeah, uh, another world champion. You know, I mean, uh, I was blessed to be there to get to work with all those all those guys because that went into me developing into the talent or you know lack of talent or whatever what I did develop into. All those matches and, and those associations had something to do with it. So, yeah, think about now. Cyclone stayed out there for eight years, and obviously, he liked that. He was making money. He didn't mind the road. Maybe where he was, where, where he started, maybe it was much worse. Wherever he started, it was much worse. Uh, he wasn't making much money, and maybe he had longer trips and he had to go on a bus or something. But for me, again, I wanted to travel. So and that was another thing. I didn't want to travel even Florida. I'd want to stay in Florida forever because you'd see the same thing over and over and over again. My lack of appreciation is due to my own peculiarities or I don't want to say lack of anything, but I just wasn't looking at it like, like I, I could have been. Yeah, uh, I gotcha. Looking at it now, I, I'm full of appreciation for everything that happened out there because it's part of who I am right now. Wow. So I'm grateful. Very cool. Uh, I was reading here, Dory Jr. basically answers the question I asked you earlier if the TV was live when you guys wrestled on Saturday mornings in Amarillo, and apparently it was not. He said it would air later in the afternoon, so just wanted to get that out there for anybody who was listening and wanting to take a little notes of their own mental notes anyway. But on Thursdays, you're back in Amarillo. You're back, quote-unquote, home here in Amarillo at the sports arena, the the big city, uh, sometimes promoted by Jerry Kozak. And Jerry and Nick Kozak, they were... They were longtime Texas wrestlers, promoters, referees. I know you said you didn't really ride a lot, ride around with these guys or have a whole lot to do with them, but do you remember anything about the Kozaks? No, I, Fair enough. I looked at I looked at pictures of them today, and I, again, I never uh, rode in a car with them, had a beer with them, or anything. So nice guys. I mean, they've seemed very athletic, clean cut, nice looking, mm -hmm. pleasant to be around. But I just didn't ever have a chance to meet them. Or to you know to get to know them. So they, as far as I know, they they always had good reputations. You know, people that of quality. Right. So, uh, you know, I'm sorry I didn't get to know them better, but th those are just the facts. I didn't. Oh yeah, no problem. Well, you did get to know a few people while you were there. You told the story last week of meeting or at least uh, getting to know a little better one, Killer Carl Cox. And I thought now would be as good a time as any if you have a, a Killer Carl Cox story you'd like to share. Well, I certainly do, because Carl had a, a serious impact on my, my career. I worked with him. I just saw it a day. I worked with him a bunch of times in Amarillo that I didn't remember, and he put me over a bunch of times. I mean, I got to beat him. And, you know, you're talking a guy that at the time was a top star in Australia, uh, one of the hottest, uh, uh, biggest draws they had over there. So, uh, you know, he put me over and made me look like a million dollars. And when I turned heel, he and I were able, actually able to travel together. And it was fun riding with Carl. He was always uh, in a good humor, uh, good mood, uh, funny. He liked, to, he liked to keep things light. And he had a good, uh, not just such a humor, but he had a lot of things that he said or did that were funny. So I one time, now he had a girl there, um, and I don't want to, in any way, besmirch Carl or anything, but I got the impression that maybe 
the girl was somebody he knew from Australia that had come to the United States, whether he brought her or whatever, I don't know. But because the fact that I had my girlfriend there, that kind of created a situation where Carl got together with me so his girlfriend would have someone, another female that she could know. So that was convenient. I don't, that's not the reason that we, we got together. It just turned out that way. But I do remember one time we were, I think we were in Albuquerque and we went to a, uh, a buffet and uh, we go in there and again, I'm, I, I felt incredibly green at the time. The fact that I've been in the business, what'd you say, two years already? Yeah, two years. Wow. So Carl, we're sit down to eat. People come up and bring us uh, menus or you know water, whatever. And ask. Carl suddenly starts telling that we're the advance party for two busloads of Mormons or something that are coming in there uh, that are going to be there like in an hour or so. And so we just want to let them know that that was what was going to be coming. You know, he wanted to, he was the advance man for that. Right. So these poor these poor people, they, they start making room. They said, well, how many people are? He said, well, there's 80 of them. So they start setting, uh, they start setting the place up for having uh, that many people come in and try to get them in one area. So we eat, and uh, Carl said, well, um, uh, no, he said, I'll check out first, and then uh, you come and check out. So I went and checked out. I paid, I paid the tab, and uh, I go out in the, in the parking lot, and he's leaning against the car, and I, he pulls his uh, his bill out of his pocket and w- waves at me, kind of <laughs> laughs. So what what he did was he, they, a lot of the guys. Later on, I had guys explain what they did. They would leave a good tip on the table, so that if the if the cashier could see the table you were at, not one thing. Carl always sat where we a cashier couldn't see us. Uh, at least in this, this, this couple of times we ate at this at that place and other ones, what they would do, and a lot of the guys did this, you know, it was just you know, it was actually theft. But uh, and I'm not <laughs> talking about it, not talking about it with praise. But what they would do is they put their their bill in their pocket, like a vest front pocket over their chest, mm-hmm. and they'd go up to the uh, to the cashier, and they'd ask for a pack of chewing gum or a comb or something they had behind the counter well the waitress if the waitress could see them the waitress would because other guys talked about it too when they they couldn't sit out of sight of the of the cashier the waitress would look up now she's got a nice tip so she's assuming that uh, people are not going to sit the restaurant right so when they look up they see the customers is handing money over they assume they're paying well they pay for the stick of gum or the comb or whatever <laughs> and put the change in their pocket and out right. they go. If they if somehow the, they get intercepted, the waitress, call, you know, so they go, oh, oh, yeah, I forgot, you know, and they pull it out <laughs> and they pay for it. So that's what he, what he done. Well, I guess well, the statute of limitation has passed on that at this point, but wow, uh, that sounds yeah. like a wrestler to me. Oh, it is. That's, that's <laughs> a wrestler. And now that's hard. It's just kind of, I'm not trying to diss Carl. <laughs> no. Because he it's, had, uh, but I mean, it's life on the road. A lot of the guys, uh, the, when I saw the movie Paper Moon uh, with Ryan O'Neill and his daughter Tatum, she won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Right. That was about con people on the road. And I thought about the boys. I thought about, uh, you know, the boys doing their, 
a lot of guys uh, did that through their careers. Do you think some quick. of the guys did that just to see if they could get away with it? It wasn't necessarily meant to be malice or because they're cheap. It was just, eh, let me see. Let me see if this works. Just just to entertain yeah. themselves. Yes. Well, and have to be able to brag about it. Yeah. Uh, guys <laughs> wanted to be an exceptional in some way. And, you know, what if pro wrestling, you talk about bending the rules. We we go out there and uh, we we every night we we assault and battery each other way more than right. legal. You, you can't hit people with chairs. And guy, imagine a soccer game. Some guy pulls up chair. The coach pulls up a chair, <laughs> runs out and whacks. You're not infield, you're not scoring on me. Infield, the, the star infielder for the other team. He's going to prison. You know. That's so, right. uh, but but wrestling, you know, we oh forget the chair. You throw fire in a guy's face. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, we were just playing. Well, that was real fire, wasn't it? Yeah. That was his real face, wasn't it? Well, it used to be. So, yeah, uh, we were bending the rules all the time with what we did in our profession. I guess to bend them a little bit on the outside is not to be uh, taken as being anything exceptional. Right. But anyway, Carl, uh, he was fun to be around. And I, he did one thing. You talk about being a colleague. We both happened to be a year, a couple of years later. We happened to both be in the Carolinas at the same time. I was coming in there. He was leaving. Uh, he was on his way. He'd been there for uh, a year or two. He's on his way out, and he was on the map. I think we were in Spartanburg. I looked it up today, and he he was on the match before me. I was I was booked against a guy named Frank Morell. Yes. And what Carl did, he did tell me about it. He didn't tell me in advance, so he was going to do it. But what he did, let me give a little background. Okay. Uh, they were trying to get me over real hard, but Johnny Weaver, the booker, would put me against these guys that had been beaten 50 times or 50 times a year for five, six years. Now, this is Crockett Actually, you're talking about is where you're working? No, this is old man. Yeah, yeah, Jim Crockett Senior. Senior, still okay. Alive. It was still alive. Okay. And, uh, yeah, this was 1973, I think. Weaver was have, would ask me to go seven or eight minutes with Guys that were uh, just, I mean, and what I did, I went sometimes 30 seconds. Guy pushed me in the ropes. Guy comes up to about my chin. I have this, I'm looking down at the top of his head. He punches me in the gut and turns and walks away like I'm supposed to fall over and <laughs> start gagging. I'd, I'd go after him, pull him around, pick him up, and give him the shoulder breaker. I looked at it. It was on the record, which is unusual, but two of the matches, one of them said one minute. The other one said two minutes. Well, I would go back afterwards, and uh, Weaver would say, well, uh, I thought you were going to go. I said, I couldn't go eight minutes with him. And, uh, yeah, he didn't. He would just look at me because I couldn't, not without totally destroying myself. I mean, I'm about there to get over. Right. I didn't do it out of some Johnny Valentine-type experience that, oh, I know. I did it out of desperation. If I if I sell for this guy hitting me like he's swatting a fly or something, and I fall down and start gagging or or even pretend it hurt me, all it did. But if I go ahead and act like all I did was irritate me and I'm not gonna even mess around any longer, I'm just gonna beat him. Well, that'll work if I do it that way. That's the only way it's gonna work to where I'm gonna get over. So uh, Weaver didn't like it, but it did work. So he had to put up with it. Well, with Carl. It was another one. Now, Frank Morrell was a pretty good talent, although he'd been beat to death, too. Uh, but over in, in Charlotte, because they had three towns a night, you could beat a guy in one of those circuits 
you could beat him for six months and then take him to another circuit. He hadn't been beat there at all. Right. And the, the TVs didn't cross over, I don't think. Was but it's poor cable, so you know you could keep what one on each territory was separate from from the other two, or the I mean territory like legs, uh, three different legs in that territory. Anyway, uh, Carl is leaving, so he does a job in his match. He gets beat, so I'm come. He told me come down. He told one thing he did tell me, come down to the ring. He said I might have the microphone, but just when they rang the bell come down to the ring. Well, he hung around there until he rang the bell for my match, and then he got back in the ring. He got the <laughs> microphone, and he started complaining. The referee was still down there. The referee stayed in the ring. He didn't leave between matches. So Carl's telling a story about he got cheated and all this and blah, blah, blah. Well, I came down to the ring, and I got up on the apron. I didn't get in the ring because I didn't. I wasn't sure what to do. Right. Uh, and, and also, he, he had the microphone, and he said, you know, Roop, he said, I'm not done here yet. Uh, Buster, uh, you know, you <laughs> fired off back to the dressing room until I'm done here. You know, he was talking down to me. Well, he sent the referee over to tell me to wait. And when he when he looked at me a certain way to, to come in the ring, okay. just to step in the ring. So he spilled a little bit more. And they, the second time he got me, I got in the ring. And so he's now he's talking to me. And Morell comes down. And now Morell comes down the heel corner. And he's standing on the apron. Carl says what I uh, told the referee to tell me. When I swing with the microphone, duck it and give me the shoulder breaker. And when Morell comes in, then give it to him. So Carl set this up in advance. So my match hadn't started yet, of course. Uh, he takes a swing. You know, he acts like he's going to put the mic down. He takes a swing at, it, uh, at me with it. And I duck. And I pick him up. I give him the shoulder breaker. Well, as I've got him up and give him a shoulder breaker, Morell's dashing through the ropes, and he's charging at me. I give Carl the shoulder breaker, stand up, turn around. Here comes Morell. Morell, I pick him up, give him the shoulder breaker. Wow. As, as he bounces off my knee, the referee signals for the bell and starts and counts, and the bell the bell didn't ring until he was on a two count. <laughs> so I, I want I Shortest want match in wrestling history. Well, it's supposedly got to be like last at least three seconds because that's right. along the context. Yeah. This one only lasted two. So, one, the bell rang, two, three. And, you know, both those guys, Carl flopped out of the ring, acting like his shoulders were broken all the way down to his ankle. Right. And uh, Morales told it, too. You talk about getting over. Those people, I'm the first yeah, time I was that's there. A, that's first. a great angle, man. Oh, that was yeah, Carl Cox time. booked it for you, huh, man? What a what Carl a great did. guy on the way. He knew he was on the way out. No yes. big deal. And he yes. sets you up to, to get over. That's amazing. Yes. Now, he knew what was going on. And here, let me let me add to it. He went back and told uh, Weaver. He said, don't blame Bob. He said, I did that. He said, I, I'm the one that did that. Don't blame Bob because he didn't do it the way you wanted him to. I was going to beat Morell with a shoulder breaker anyway. but Right. Yeah, but it would have been it would have been essentially a glorified squash against Frank Morell. Yes, yes. But instead, he added a whole lot of flavor to this whole situation. Oh, I'm walking back. You know, I hadn't gotten my red, white, and blue. I'm in the basic black and black black boots. I'm walking back. People are looking at me like, "Who the hell's this guy?" Oh my God, they hadn't seen anything like that. Right. And so, um, oh yeah, you know, for Carl to do that, first of all, it takes a couple things. One, it takes a real head for the business yeah. about how to get people over. And it takes a guy who's a, a true friend. 
Uh, yeah, that's how I feel about Carl Cox. And I told you about in Abilene, he, he is uh, legitimately a tough guy. And I'm going to segue a little bit away from what we've been talking about. Okay. We, I see all this stuff in the business about people, a lot of times on not obituaries, but on what people say about guys who have passed. And they say he was a tough, tough SOB. Right. And I'm just curious, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What do you mean tough? If you're talking about he was able to go down the road and be on the road for 350 days a year for 20 years and not go crazy and not lose his family and maybe his kids were able to go to school, graduate from college, you know, maybe he's tough because that takes a lot of discipline. Yeah, absolutely. If you're talking about tough beating somebody up, what are you talking about? <laughs> Who did he beat up? <laughs> None of these guys got in a tough man contest. I'm not talking about me at all. It has nothing to do with me. Right. Who, who, where does the toughness come from? First of all. Stories and legends, man. <laughs> unless you're really, really an egregious. I don't know how you can beat up another wrestler and be one of the boys. Unless they really got it coming. Now, we talked about with JYD a while back. Uh, <laughs> I made sure that was private. Nobody else saw it. Uh, just me. And right. I didn't other boys. I didn't want him to interfere. I didn't want to see it either. Yeah, I didn't want it to demean Lex Luger anymore and he needed to be. No, but, but that story's dog, been out there a long time though. So it's, well, it's out there. But so the point I want to make, and I'm I'm building up to something. Okay. What what Carl Cox did when he, he left the business, and here's another thing. I just found this out in the last couple of days. I've been reading uh, a book by Scott Teal called The Wrestling Archive Project. And one of the people he talks about, he's one of the few people who has an interview with Carl Cox. I've been reading about it, and one of the things that Carl did, the reason that he quit the business was because he had a new family and he had a couple of kids that he didn't want to. His first family, he wasn't there for his kids' high school graduation, wasn't there for their, their college graduation. He was in and out, and he didn't want to do that again. Exactly the same in my life. That uh, young child I was talking about coming out to Amarillo uh, when through most of his life I wasn't there for him, and I was I was wrestling. And so uh, when my wife Molly and I, when we decided to have children, uh, I re I retired because I didn't want to be on the road again. I was for a short time, but it became too unbearable uh, towards it was really affecting our family. I just stopped doing it. So and. That, I feel that in common with Carl. I understand it. But one of the things he did, he looked for another job, and he found one working at a jail. And, in Dallas, I believe. Yeah, and I want to—I just want to read. Uh, uh, he worked in the sheriff's department in Dallas. He worked there from 1982 to 1994 because he said they were 12 and a half years. And he was 51 years old at the time he took the job because he was born in 1931. And I'm going to read. He said, I retired from the sheriff's department in 94 after 12 and a half years to work in the jail, handling all them damned idiots. You know, Scott, it's funny. All the blacks in jail, they all knew me. Yeah, I used to watch you wrestle on TV, killer Carl Cox. Yeah, it's funny. Now I'm watching you. They loved it. I'd say, do you know why you're wearing white and I'm wearing blue? No, why's that, man? Because I haven't been caught yet. They'd laugh like hell. I'm not sitting here blowing my own whistle, but I have more respect than anybody that worked in that jail. They have trouble in the other jails. 
They call me. I just walk in and start jacking with those guys. We'd have near-riot situations. I'd just get all the troublemakers out. Okay, man, come with me. Come with me. And hell, man, they would go with me. Every once in a while, you get a fool. But as long as I'm going to dump him on his ass, I do it in front of everybody. Let me, let me put it in context. Jack Briscoe and I did a gig in Rayford Prison. Uh, we went to Rayford. Yeah, there's two of us. And yeah. we went through, oh, five or six different stations where they open the sliding bars and you go in and then they shut them behind you. Uh, and you walk down a little hallway and there's another one that opens and shuts. We went through about five or six of those to get into the gymnasium where there was a ring. And we got in the ring. It wasn't to do a match. We were going to do some kind of talk. I don't remember exactly about what. But there was, uh, I don't know, there's two or three hundred of the inmates were in the gym. And I'm telling you something. I don't care about being an Olympian. I don't care about being having all kinds of wrestling skills. I don't care about being able to fight. Some of those guys I saw looking at me scared the hell out of me. And I mean, they, because they were looking at us like I looked about I looked about 17 years old at the time, and they were looking at us. And Jack was this nice-looking guy. I mean, <laughs> somebody loved to have him as their cellmate, if you know what I mean. So uh, they're looking at us like. Uh, we need to treat you guys for lunch if you ever had to spend any time in here because they presented the hell out of us. We were going to be able to leave when we got done. They right. had to stay there. Yeah. So, oh, man, what I felt in that gym just scared the absolute crap out of me. Not quite that bad. But it was, it was, uh, I was nervous the whole time I was there. Not that they were going to do anything. I mean, there were guards around and all that. But I just thought, oh, man, I would have got to hate to have to be in here with these kind of people, you know? Uh, not not everybody, uh, but but some of the oh, you talk about bad vibes. Imagine if there's guys in there for murder, guys in there for you know, child abuse, for pedophilia, all kinds of crap, you know. So right. I only tell that story. Not you know, it's not very elevating, mood elevating, or enlightening. But now let's go back to Carl Cox. That's the kind of people he was around in that jail. Right. Some sure. of them, some of them might have been in transit to a bigger prison. Because, you know, they, they were waiting for trial or whatever. But they were still murderers there in the jail with him. And he was going in and personally walking them out of places from, you know, to, to stop riots from happening. That's a man who is tough. And I say, not, why? Why is he tough? Because he's mentally tough. He knows he can handle whatever's going to happen. So he didn't have any qualms about doing that. Do I think he was foolish? No, I don't. I think he had his eyes open. I think he wasn't going to turn his back uh, and leave himself vulnerable. But by the same token, I think he was confident in what he's doing because he says it. Every once in a while, you get a fool. But as long as I'm going to dump him on his ass, I do it in front of everybody. Uh, being a pro wrestler, uh, you have to be, uh, you have to have endurance uh, if you want to train, stay in shape, all these things. And believe me, even people, myself, uh, Blue Fez, uh, Billy Robinson, they're running to somebody who's more skilled at what they're doing, who knows submission holds, also knows karate, also knows kickboxing, also knows kendo, also knows stick fighting, also has brass knocks in his pocket. It's going to kick the crap out of him. <laughs> I know that. I've known that my whole life. That's why I never look for trouble anywhere. <laughs> but I mean, even, uh, even David Schultz, 
and Dave, if you're out there somewhere, don't get mad and come looking for me. <laughs> but uh, but the only person I and now Dave I understood was a, a skip tracer. He went after people that oh, yeah. skipped their bail. Yeah, he's oh, a bounty be, big time. Yeah, you gotta yeah you gotta be you gotta be pretty rangy to do that. But the only person I've ever seen him beat up was a guy that weighed eighty five eighty pounds less than him. John Stossel. Yeah. weighed about one hundred fifty pounds. <laughs> he, he slapped him. I mean. Does that make him tough? No, it doesn't. Not at all. Well, some tells me Dave Dave popped a person or two in his lifetime, but uh, yeah, I get I get where you're oh, going with it, though. Yeah. Oh, the, I think he's tough. I think yeah. he's tough. Yeah, but I, I get what you're he's... saying. I I understand the 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 main focus of of what you're getting at there. Pretty cool stuff there with Killer Carl Cox, who uh, by 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 every admission I've ever seen was a pretty tough guy, both inside the ring and out, and, and again, not just physically, but like you said, mentally. By the way, you described his his life and how he you know how he handled himself just in general. Hopefully well, by the next episode, we can get another Carl Cox story or two in because of I'm, course. I, I'm, I'm looking around myself. I, if I can find anything funny, cause there's so many stories out there of some of the silliness that he did in the ring. Sometimes it got him fired. Obviously the promoter would hire him back a couple months later, but after it cooled over, but there's uh, you know, there's a lot of stories out there of some of the things Cox would do after he was uh, explicitly told not to do it in the ring. And it wasn't like in any malice or any, you know, like, you know, doing it out of hate or spite. He was just doing it because he found it funny. So there's a, well, there's a friend, tough man who had a hell of a sense of humor, clearly. His friend Alex. Alex, you yeah. Know, he would talk the to invisible Alex. invisible friend. Yes. Yeah, the invisible friend. You know, he came across as a serious schizophrenic, yes. multiple personality disorder. Right. But, you know, he made it believable. Uh, he he just did basically did what he wanted to do. And if you didn't like it, well, what are you going to do about it? That's, that's, uh, that's basically his career in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. And so I I respect him without qualifications. I respect him. I don't agree with everything he did, but nobody's all good. Nobody's all bad. We all have different things we do. I don't agree with everything Carl did. I don't do behave in the same way he did. But in terms of what I know from him about him as a person, I have total respect for him. I think he's one of the the true guys I met in this business that I, again, uh, respect. Always wish he'd come to the reunions, but yeah, he did. He been on the road enough, you know. He just didn't feel the need to go. Right. Well, I think uh, we can leave here on a high note, talking about Killer Carl Cox, one of the true enigmas of the uh, territory era. Certainly, like you said, he didn't really come out a lot in the later years, which is unfortunate. But at least he did a little bit there with Scott Teal. Uh, I guess this week, Bob, we're going to wrap it up here. Going to close out the show on the Carl Cox stories, and maybe we'll have a couple more by the time we come back next time around. We're going to continue on here talking more Amarillo next time around. We're going to talk about your matches with the Funks, your heel turn in Amarillo, your very first heel turn, Bob Roop in the Amarillo territory, all of that, so much more. And uh, we'll look at some of the other opponents you had. Maybe we'll jog a few memories as we scroll along through the results. Okay. Uh, sounds good. Awesome. I love today. <laughs> uh, yeah, I enjoyed tonight a lot. You brought out you brought out some really good stuff. Uh, your re, your researching ability is excellent, my friend. Uh, it's really enjoyable to work with you. I appreciate you being able to back up the stories and just the memories. You I remember Johnny Valentine had to be Abilene. I go and look. Yeah, Bob, it was Abilene. Man, yeah, I I don't want to stump you, but at the same time, it's like, damn, how does he remember these things? It's amazing, you know. For everything you don't recall, like oh, it was a good match, so I don't remember it. But you do remember these little things, and I love that. That's it's great. It just gives more character to the show. Well, I appreciate it. I, I again, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be any fun. Guy, all of a sudden, I have amnesia. 
<laughs> what are we going to talk about? Well, I went shopping today this afternoon. I, think. I was able to get. I, I think, yeah, yeah, good one. Yeah, I think it. I don't remember. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Oh, God. God. Well, I guess well, so. Yeah. We're going to close up shop here this week, but what a fun time. I, I, before I had a great feeling about this episode, just being in the Amarillo territory, the, the spirits of Ter Terry Funk uh, floating around here somewhere, you know, I just, I oh, felt yeah. like it was going to be a good time and we haven't oh, even got yeah. to the Funks yet. You're going to step in the ring with all three oh, of yeah. them here before you leave the territory. So next time around, we're going to take a look at some of Bob's matches, more of the great stars here and so much more. Just want to thank you, Bob, for this fun, fun trip back to Amarillo. Thank you, Ray. I like traveling down the road with you, my friend. And all right, guys, that's going to do it here this week on the program. Just a reminder, you guys can go and follow Bob, friend Bob, over at facebook.com slash poorbobroop. Bob, looking forward to hearing from each and every one of you there. You can also follow me, Ray Russell. You can follow me on X, formerly Twitter, at Rasslin Grenade. It's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, facebook.com. And don't forget about that $5 all-access tier over at patreon.com slash wrestlecopia so many gifts for just five bucks and you're really helping out a great cause and keeping the network thriving for five bucks guys you get so many gifts plus you show us that you're there you show us that you care but for now i am your co-host ray russell on behalf of bob we'll be back soon with another edition of the wrestling stoop with the legend himself bob Roop. <laughs>